Hey, Wellspring family, I hope you all had and are having a wonderful Christmas so far. I'm sure that this year is perhaps looking a bit different in light of our current cultural situation, but I hope and trust that God's been good and that he is making his presence and peace known to you and your families as we navigate our way through this season. And this is also the final Sunday of 2020. So all things considering, well, we made it. So what better topic to discuss as we approach the end of this year than that of God's delivering and rescuing of us. So back when I was going into grade eight, and to be more specific, it was the summer before going into grade eight, I went to this Christian camp with my grandparents and my cousin. I believe my grandfather was the speaker for the week, and I didn't want to go alone, so I, I remember dragging my cousin along with me. Now, it was a family camp, so there must have been about 20 families or so at this camp for the week. And the first day, you know, as you would expect, my cousin and I were scoping out the situation. You know, seeing who was there, seeing if there were any boys that were cool, but more importantly, seeing what the whole female situation looked like. So the first day, we each scoped out a particular female that we thought we would, how do I say, woo or draw to ourselves. Now for me, I discovered that the girl that I had taken a notice of, well, she was currently dating a guy who was actually in grade 10 and who was also attending the camp. So I realized that I had my work cut out for me. I had to figure out a way to not only get the attention of a girl that was dating someone else, but who was dating a grade 10 while I was only in grade 8. Now, to be honest, I don't really know how I did it, but somehow, through my grade 8 charm and sensitive heart and good looks, by day four, I managed to outduel the grade 10 boy and stole his girl. Now, he obviously didn't take too kind to this, and so I believe on day five, this grade 10 guy and his friend, they came up to me and my cousin, and they were being friendly, and they wanted to hang out with us. So this took us a bit by surprise. So they asked if my cousin and I wanted to go kayaking with them. They wanted to go out to this rock island that was about 300 yards at least off the shore that was apparently supposed to be cool. So being naive grade eight boys and not telling anyone where we were going or what we were doing, we decided to go kayaking with these two grade tens to this rock island. So we get into this four-person kayak and start paddling. Now, when we got to this island, the two grade 10 boys told us to jump out first and to grab the rope so that we could take it to the rocks and so that it w or tie it to the rocks so that it wouldn't uh, float away. So my cousin and I jumped out of the boat onto this big rock. And, but as soon as we jumped out, the two boys quickly pushed off and in not so many kind words, told us that they were going to leave us stranded. So there we were, stranded on this rock island, 300 yards off the shore. Cell phones didn't exist yet. Nobody knew where we were, and we had no idea how we were going to get back. And we were in desperate need of being rescued. But lucky for us, a few hours later, the boys eventually confessed to what happened, and a rescue team was sent out to get us, and we were delivered and saved. So the moral of the story is, if you're in grade eight, 
Don't steal a grade 10's girlfriend. Merry Christmas and God bless. No, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. So we are in week 16 of our series in Revelation called Unveiled Hope. And as I mentioned before my little story, today we're going to talk about the reality of God's deliverance and rescuing of us. So the title for our talk is God Our Deliverer. God Our Deliverer. So if you have your Bible or your cell phone or your tablet, turn to Revelation 15. Now this is a very crucial chapter in the book. We are, in a sense, rounding third base and on our way home. It is a transitional chapter. And just so we are all caught up and on the same page, so far in our journey through Revelation, we have seen a lot. We discovered that John gets this amazing vision of Jesus. Then we looked at these seven mini letters that were written to seven churches. Then we saw that John gets this amazing Amazing vision of heaven and the throne and God seated on the throne. And then we looked at the seal judgments, which were followed by the trumpet judgments. And then in chapter 10, as we learned from Pastor Shane, there was this pause in the narrative, kind of like a breather for the reader. The trumpet judgments had just ended and there had been this continual buildup as the reader is awaiting the final seven bold judgments of God's wrath. But John decides to pause. And actually, the pause was not only for chapter 10, but from chapters 10 to 14. In these chapters, the narrative flow stops and John receives a bunch of other visions that are kind of all over the place. So if you missed any of these sermons on these chapters, I encourage you to go back and watch them. But now we get to chapter 15. This pause ends and the narrative is about to pick up again. As one commentator writes, through interlude, delay, and anticlimax, Revelation has forestalled the coming of the end. But that delay can last no longer. Now the final manifestation of God's wrath commences. So this is where we are in chapter 15. It is the point of transition. It is the 12th round bell in the championship fight. The final manifestation of God's wrath is about ready to be released on the unbelieving world. So let's jump in to chapter 15. Verse 1 says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them, the final wrath of God is finished. So John is once again in a vision-like state where he is seeing things in the unseen realm or the spiritual world. He sees this sign in heaven that he describes as being both great and amazing. And then we discover this amazing sign that he's actually seeing as seven angels who seem to be holding or carrying seven plagues. Or as we will see in chapter 16, they are seven bowls of God's outpouring of wrath. Then verse 2 says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So then John sees what appears to be a sea of glass that he has already seen back in chapter 4. 
But here this sea is, is kind of mixed with fire now. And one thing that we can see already in these two verses, and something that we will see more and more as we read, is that there is tons of Exodus imagery. These seven angels are holding seven plagues, which points back to the Exodus account. In verse 3, we're going to see the Song of Moses, which was sung after the Exodus account. But here in verse 2, we see what appears to be a sea that is red mixed with fire. But as one commentator puts it, it can also be likened to blood. So if you remember the first plague that God sent against Pharaoh in Egypt, the water turned to blood. So what most scholars suggest here is that this red in this sea of glass, this fire is speaking to the fact of the judgment that is about to come. These seven plagues of God's wrath that are about to be poured out on the unbelieving world. Then we see that standing on the shore of this sea are a host of people and they are all playing the harp. And not only that, but this group of people are also the ones who conquered the beast. Those who did not bow down to the image of the beast, those who remained loyal to God. We have seen all throughout Revelation up to this point, people who have been persecuted, those who suffered, those who fought against the deception of the enemy, and who have been crying out to God for deliverance, for vindication, for salvation, for justice to be done. So this group is standing beside this sea of red and are going to finally see and experience the deliverance of the Lord. And so they're all playing the harp. And then in verse 3, we see that while they are playing, they begin to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of similarities between what we are reading here in Revelation 15 and in the Exodus event. And so in the second part of verse 3 and in verse 4, we read this song. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. But the song goes like this. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, this song of Moses that is being sung is actually a summary of the song that was sung by the people of Israel back in Exodus chapter 15, when they made their way out of Egypt through the Red Sea, when the armies of Pharaoh were destroyed. So I want to pause here for a moment. See, John is doing something very intentional here. In light of the context here in Revelation 15, He's wanting the mind of the reader or, li- or the listener to go back to Exodus and remember what happened there. The Exodus event was the monumental event for the people of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, there are hundreds of allusions and quotes detailing this event woven throughout many of the Old Testament books. To an ancient Jew, this event was the ultimate act and example of deliverance and freedom and redemption. So I want to pause here and quickly go over again what happened in Exodus and look at what God did and how and why this was such a great act of deliverance. See, John wants the reader to know, to see, and remember what God did. 
So here is just a quick summary. So Israel, God's people, had been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Life was hard for them, and they began to cry out to God and ask God to deliver them. So then God speaks through a burning bush to a guy named Moses and tells Moses that he is going to deliver Israel from slavery and wants him to be the leader of the mission. God tells Moses that he is to go to Pharaoh and let him know that he needs to let the people of Israel go. Then Pharaoh, of course, rejects God's request. See, Pharaoh believed he was the true God and that no other God was going to come and demand that he do something, let alone letting all the Israelite workforce go. So then we have this confrontation between God and Pharaoh. God sends a plague, or as one commentator put it, a sign and wonder that hits Egypt in a dramatic way in the hopes of causing Pharaoh to relent and let the people of Israel go. But that doesn't happen. After each plague that comes, Pharaoh's heart becomes harder and harder, and and he begins to dig his heels in the ground deeper and deeper, despite the devastation that is being caused. And then we get to the 10th plague, which was where the angel of death was sent throughout the land, and any doorpost that did not have blood on it, the firstborn child in that home was killed. And God had told Israel to make sure you put blood on the doorpost so that when the angel of death would pass over all their homes, but enter every Egyptian home. And that is what happened. A great cry of mourning filled Egypt as every home awoke and discovered that their firstborn was now dead and Pharaoh was no exception. So then finally, Pharaoh submits and says to Moses to take the people and go. And so Israel picks up and begins to move out of Egypt. But like so many times before, Pharaoh's heart hardens, and he kind of reaches the ultimate point of hardness, and he decided that he was going to take his army and go after Israel. So eventually they catch up to Israel, and they see them in the distance, and they see that Israel is trapped by the Red Sea. They can't get across. But then as the story goes, God tells Moses to stretch out his hands, and the waters begin to part. And as the waters part, Israel, seeing Pharaoh and his army in the distance approaching, begins to make their way through the Red Sea on dry ground. Then as soon as the last person gets across and Pharaoh and his army are right in the middle, the waters fall back to their original position and all of Pharaoh's army drowns and Israel is saved. And then it's at this moment where Israel begins to sing this song of deliverance to God for what he did. A song of hope, a song of thankfulness, a song of declaration to the goodness, the power, the authority, the love, and the justice of God. Again, that is just a quick summary of what happened. But this is what John wanted in the head of the reader and listener. He wanted those first century Christians who have been going through and dealing with so much persecution and suffering to remember that God had not forgotten them that God was fully aware of the situations they were in and that his heart and desire was to rescue, to save and deliver them, that he was going to vindicate them, that he was going to enact justice on their behalf for all the suffering that they endured. And this is what we see here in chapter 15. God is getting ready to set the record straight. God is getting ready to bring his final judgment 
on the unbelieving world and those who remained faithful to God, those who didn't take the mark of the beast and worship the image, who were standing on the shore of the sea of red glass, knew that God was getting ready to fulfill his promises to them. And so they began to sing him a song of deliverance. Did you know that the phrase Jehovah Nisi means God our deliverer? This is who God is. This is not just something that God does, but it's who he is. He is our deliverer. So what I want to do next is go back to that ancient Hebrew song of deliverance in Exodus 15 and pull out three truths that show or highlight that Jehovah Nisi, God our deliverer, is in fact who he says he is. Now this is a long song. We're not going to read it all. And there are many examples that show this. But again, just for the sake of time, we are going to just look at three. The first truth that I want to pull out is that, you know, God is our deliverer because he has the authority to deliver. Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The phrase, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, is actually a super important statement and a lot of times gets missed. The gods here in this text are not speaking to idols or objects. The word in the Hebrew is Elohim, which speaks of supernatural beings, divine beings, beings who live and reside in the unseen realm. In fact, in the Exodus account, when God is unleashing these plagues on Egypt, each one of them was directed at a particular God or deity that Egypt believed in. So in this dramatic confrontation and showdown between Pharaoh and God, God is not only bringing judgment on Pharaoh, but on all of the gods of Egypt. The writer is saying that there is no God, no divine being, no ruler, principality, dominion, demon, fallen angel that can stand against God. There is only one God who is majestic in holiness, who performs great and awesome deeds, who performs wonders. There is only one God by which every other divine being has to bow. There is only one God who is the creator of everything that spoke the world, this universe into existence that created every being in it, both divine and human. And it is for this reason that God has the authority to deliver. It does not matter what situation you may find yourself in, it does not matter what the enemy may be trying to do in your life. They cannot usurp the authority of God. God is on top. God is the king. God is the ruler and everything must bow. Second, God is our deliverer because he has the power to deliver. Not only does God have the authority, but also the power the Bible describes God as being all-powerful. And the fancy word for this is omnipotence. In Exodus 15, verse 3 and 6 and 7, this reality is described this way. We read, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 
In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Now, I don't know about you, but knowing that we serve a God who is all-powerful is crucial to almost every facet of our Christian lives. One of the main things that we have looked at and studied and discussed in our series on Revelation is the fact that we have an enemy who is trying to take us out. And let's be honest here. Your belief or lack thereof in the power of God is going to directly influence the way you live your lives. Knowing what you know now, understanding that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against supernatural beings in the unseen realm. If you don't really like experientially and not just intellectually believe that God is all powerful, then how do you expect to pray with confidence? How do you expect to pray full of faith? How do you expect to withstand temptation? How do you expect to have confidence that God is able to deliver you? You see, sometimes in church, we like to talk about these kinds of things from a big perspective. But when we get down to the bottom, to the core of who we are, oftentimes we discover that we don't really believe what we say. So if you are feeling or thinking today that, yeah, I really don't believe that in the core of who I am, then let this be a fresh reminder today for you that you serve an all-powerful God whose strength has no end and has no limit. You serve a God who at the mere mention of his name, hell itself shudders. You serve a God that is more powerful than COVID-19, more powerful than any sickness or disease for that matter, more powerful than any demonic presence, more powerful than any financial situation you may be facing, and more powerful than any obstacle that may be in your way. We serve a God that has the power to deliver. And thirdly, God is our deliverer because he has the desire to deliver. In Exodus 15, 13, we read, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Yes, God has the authority to deliver. He has the power to deliver, but he also desires to do so. The text says that he is led by his love. His desire to deliver comes from a place of unconditional, unending love that he has for his people. In the story of the Exodus, God heard and then responded to the cries of his people for help. And it is the same for you and for me today. God hears your cries. God sees the pain that you may be in or sees the difficulty that you're in. He sees the impossible situation that you may be trying to navigate your way through. And he wants to remind you this morning that just as he can flex his muscles and showcase his power and strength, that ultimately what motivates him to come and rescue you, to save you, to deliver you from whatever it, uh, it may be, is his love. In church, you need to know and be reminded that God loves you. He loves you so much and he hears you and is moved by you. So as we conclude this morning, we jump back to the time of the Exodus and saw God's deliverance there. 
We looked at Revelation 15 and saw the beginning of the final deliverance that is coming for all of us who have given our lives to Jesus in the future. But I can't end without talking about the greatest act of deliverance, the greatest act of authority, power, and love, which is what Jesus did for us on the cross. The cross is what the entire Exodus account was a picture and shadow of. The cross was what the entire Exodus account was pointing forwards to. And the cross is the foundation and the reason we as believers have the hope for a final deliverance awaiting us in the future. Jesus is our ultimate deliverer. Jesus is our ultimate rescuer and savior. What Jesus did for us on the cross in conquering sin, death, and the grave in taking back all the authority that the enemy had, in taking all of our sin and, wrong, and wrongdoing upon himself, and then giving us his righteousness, his perfection, his blamelessness, really is the greatest act of deliverance that anyone could ever hope for or receive. When you weigh the gospel and what Jesus did for you and for me against any problem, that we may face in the here and now, it simply holds no weight. This is how amazing and awesome our Jesus is. Let's pray. So Jesus, again, we just want to acknowledge that you are our savior, that you are our deliverer, that you are our hope, that you are our great love, that there is no one like you we want to thank you for what you did for us on the cross because it is the foundation for everything. Without that, Jesus, we are lost. And we have no hope. But because of who you are and what you've done, we can stand confidently today despite what we may be facing or going through in the here and now, that we have the hope and the confidence that you can and will and are going to deliver us. And I pray right now, Jesus, for every heart who may be just feeling a bit heavy in this season. I just pray, Lord, that your peace would just flood and fill each heart and each spirit right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill each home each room, surround each person with your tangible presence right now. Become so real to each one of us. And we love you. We love you. We love you so much. And we thank you for everything that you've done and are doing and will do in our lives. It's for your beautiful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.